This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and, you know, somebody is begging to get back on the show again. I, You know, it seems like an attention type of... He's kind of needy, I guess. He's got this little YouTube channel you may have heard of, little website called Scanner Danner. I don't know. I've heard of it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There is not enough good things to say about this guy, really. I'd have to learn a second language. I think the world of a very good friend of mine, Paul Danner. Thank you for joining me again, sir. Thank you. That's a nice intro. I appreciate that. You sent it to me, so I just read it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He, nothing of the sort. The feeling is mutual, Matt. I think the world of you too, man. I think you're a pioneer for this industry and you you have been for a very long time. And it, you know, it's hard to hear compliments. It's hard for me to hear that from you as well as I'm sure it is for you to hear that from me. But I mean that. Like I've known you for a really, really long time, way back in the IATN days and you're well respected in 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 this field, and when you speak, I want to listen. So, and I think this podcast is a is a great avenue for for you to, you know, get some good messages out there to the masses. And like I said, if you're pay, if you're talking, I'm paying attention, Matt. So, so one of my upcoming episodes will involve a psychotherapist to help Paul. <laughs> I really appreciate it, though. Thank you. Thank you very much for those kind words. And I guess since we're talking about kind words, let's toss out some kind words about Napa, our, my sponsor that I'm very appreciative of. How does Napa support your auto care center through national marketing? Napa will help build upon the already successful Know How for All campaign and promote auto care offerings and services to our Do It For Me customer with support through sales driver promotions, optimized targeted media and local markets and proven channels, Give your repair facility an online presence with Napa Online, generating millions of views per month. If you're interested in partnering with Napa Auto Care and capitalizing on the Napa Know How for All national marketing campaign, contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. Here we are. I sent you a message a couple of days ago with an idea. The nature of it was a conversation on the phone with a fellow tech, another friend of mine. I was telling him about a car I was working on. And it was a, a Kia. It was a no start. Cranks, but does not start. And you could hear that it was firing out of time or, you know, there's some kind of a compression issue. So I did a relative compression test because it's easy. And I could see the every other look on the current ramps. So I'd have a high, low, high, low, high, low, high, low, which I mean, is a very, very strong indicator that... I have a you know bank to bank imbalance. It's a it was a V6 engine and most likely cam timing. However, I lucked out, lucked out, I feel, that this was a push button start. And so as it's, you know, you hit the button, it keeps cranking even when you've let off. So it's still cranking while I walk around the front of the vehicle and I see bubbles just streaming into the overflow tank. So I go grab my exhaust gas analyzer and just sniff what's in the overflow tank. And I mean, I think I spiked 1,500 parts per million hydrocarbons. CO2 went up. CO went up. Like, this is hardcore 
head gasket issue or maybe even cracked head, something like that, serious. And they're wondering why I didn't put a pre- some sort of pressure transducer on it. You know, I could figure out which cylinder it was. And I was thinking, and I, not even thinking, I said, like, I really don't care. This thing is either coming apart or we are replacing the engine. I mean, we got cam timing out, head or head gasket out. I really don't really, I just don't care which cylinder is the culprit. I'm not sure I even care which bank is the culprit for the cam timing issue. This thing's done. You see it many, many times, almost like this over-romanticizing maybe of diagnostic procedures. And what really hammered it home for me, it was on the way home, I saw one of your videos and it was either, I think it was on YouTube, but it could have been, it could have been Facebook Watch, but I'm pretty sure it was YouTube where you were catching a little bit of flack in the comments about coil swapping. Oh, yeah. And I thought coil swapping, like, you're going to have the coils swapped faster than you can get your PC booted up, get the leads, whatever whatever test you're going to do on the ignition system, you already know if it's so easy to lift and swap those coils, and it works, like it follows that cylinder, you're done, you know. You, right. What else do you need to know? Right. I know the video. It was recent and it was YouTube. Yeah. So I just feel like we over romanticize some of this stuff where time is spent. And I understand like time for experimenting and learning. Great. Yeah. But when you're there to make money and be productive, I don't, I just feel like a lot of time is wasted with these tests that we are see at a training class or read, you know, in an article, I felt like you were the perfect guest for this because I feel very strongly over the years, you've displayed a very no nonsense approach and it's evolving always approach to analyzing vehicles. And even though you very much have the ability, both with knowledge and equipment, to go to the higher levels of testing and analysis. If you don't need to, you don't. I love that. And I wish that was promoted more. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree w- more with you, Matt. I think the the conflict that I have when I'm producing videos is who am I producing it for, for this particular moment? I mean, if it's in a classroom environment and I want to teach methods and ways that you can approach something then I might break out all the high-tech equipment. So, and the reason I do that is if that particular car we're talking about with the coil swaps, I believe it was on a Toyota, it was a coil unplug, it had a secondary ignition coil fault. If I had that in a classroom, then I would want to teach that group as many different ways as possible to recognize that fault. And starting low-tech, and actually in a classroom environment, I may start with the higher-end equipment to see if we can prove it first before we swap coils around. And maybe I use that approach because the intake manifold covers the coils and I can't do the coil swap. So approaching it you know, from that angle, you would need some more specialized equipment to do it. But if it's right out in the open, you know, it's just as valuable to teach that method as it is, you know, like you said, the romanticized high-tech equipment 
that we can see that fall. And it's funny, my my slogan is don't be a parts changer. And, and you're right. No, one guy commented, oh, I see you were being a parts changer. You know, I, I guess you're right. I, I was. I swapped the coils and the problem moved with the coils. And like you said, I'm done. Like if, that's still troubleshooting, isn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. And uh, another example that pops into mind, I had a Jaguar K8 with a left front wheel speed sensor issue. And, you know, again, uh, a friend I'm telling this about uh, after the diagnosis is, you know, did you scope it? It's like scoping MR sensors kind of sucks. I'd just rather not. So what, you know, what did you do? Well, in this case, I'm kind of a fan of the uh, Wacom builds a tool, the uh, 20560. Yeah, I kind of like that because not just even for me, everybody else in the shop, they get a ABS issue, traction control issue, wheel speed sensor. They need to test the sensor and the wiring and back to the module and maybe the module itself. They can unplug the sensor, plug this in. If it's a, a passive or a VRS style sensor, it kind of tells you if it's open or shorted. Yeah. And if that's fine, now you can spin it, the wheel, and it'll kind of tell you it's putting something out. And if it's an active sensor, you have to be uh, aware of polarity. Just So you just flip the leads around. It's super simple. But it powers up the sensor. And it's, again, you know, most MR sensors are pretty high resistance anyways. But you can spin it and see if it does something. And then if that kind of tests good, and even if it does, even if it doesn't test good, like you kind of have a sense that the sensor is bad, you can now plug it into the harness. And with the scan tool, simulate the sensor and look on the scan tool and see, am I reading something? And if you do, you've pretty much proven the wiring's good and, and you can leave it go and manipulate the harness. You know, that's what I found with the Jaguar is the sensor seems to be fine. When I plugged in the uh, to the harness, nothing was showing up on the ABS control module and the wheel speed sense pit. So quickly, I went over to the right side just to make sure, the other side, and I could see something. So I go back over to the driver's side front, same thing, and I start you know, putting my sensor simulation on that wire or the wires, and I start manipulating the harness, and I find that if I grab the harness just right and squeeze just right where it passes through the inner fender, I can get speed readings and kind of quote unquote temporarily fix the issue, proving that that harness is bad. Right. No scope. You know, I suppose right. I could have used a ohmmeter or whatever, but this is all right there. Bang, bang. This is all done. And I, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I, I don't, if I am, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to make it sound so simple, but this is all accomplished in 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops. And I know what's wrong with it. And I, I didn't have to go get fancy. I didn't have to wheel over scopes and, you know, what, you know, MR sensors typically we're trying to look at current at very, very low current levels. Right. So, you know, it's just like we, we get too caught up sometimes in these. I don't know if it's just trainers, but training content, the articles, you know, they're supposed to entertain us. They're supposed to grab our attention. I think it's important to understand how those systems work. If I understand how it works and I understand what it might look like on a scope, that helps me not need the scope in this case. And I'm not, I don't think I'm coming off anti-scope. I hope not. No, 
I think from both of us that, I mean, maybe someone who doesn't know who we are would possibly think that, but the people that know who we are, we, we can't be anti-scope, right? I mean, we can't be like, that's, that's been our, our thing for a long, long time, but there's times I agree with you. You you just don't need it. Like it's overkill. And I think sometimes it can lead to complications in your diagnosis when you learn some new technique. And I, I can't think of the specifics, but it was in one of the automotive groups and a, a guy is having, man, I wish I remembered the exact scenario, but I'm like, why are you doing this particular scope test for this particular symptom? It just didn't make sense. In my opinion, it was a complete waste of time. I don't remember the specifics exactly. I think it might've been like a a low power condition at wide open throttle only or something like that. And the guy's really focused on his in-cylinder pressure and relative compression. And I'm like, why are you doing those things without first looking at scan data and making sure that, you know, what, what's your O2s look at at wide open throttle? What's, what's your mass airflow grams per second? What's, what's your calculated load numbers? Stuff that you can do in the, in the seat, the driver's seat with the scan tool. And he's already got the scope out and doing all this in-cylinder stuff. And in-cylinder pressure waveforms are probably one of the hardest things to look at and know for sure what your problem is. And I get the, that would be, a, I think, a prime example of, over, you know, romanticizing scopes is some of the in-cylinder pressure stuff. And like you said, for your head gasket one, I had a known head gasket failure on my son's car. This is a video we never produced. And uh, maybe I will at some point. It was his old 94 Toyota Celica. I knew for a fact that I had a head gasket problem. And it started with an overheat from the car sitting. And then when we got it to my house, I pulled the rad cap off and you know filled it up with coolant because it was low. And I just had my son crank it and it shot out of the radiator of like, you know, two feet, like just on a crank. So I, I'm done. This head's coming off. And just like you, didn't care what cylinder. It, it didn't matter to me at all. And I was just gonna pull it apart and it's you know, it's a driveway job anyway, but we ended up putting just because just just to see if we could identify what specific cylinder. I ended up putting a pressure transducer on the radiator and cranking it over and doing some checks. And I have to be honest with you, I couldn't make heads or tails out of what I was seeing. I, I had no idea what cylinder it was. And I could go back even still now knowing, you know, once I had the head gasket off, I think there was evidence of at least two cylinders I just couldn't make heads or tails out of the waveform. So I wanted to try this fancy new, you know, test for, okay, sync it with the ignition event and, and look at your pressure waveform. And there you go. There's your head gasket failure. And it just, it was a waste of time. It, it was an absolute waste of time. You would have been better off in this scenario for as bad as that head gasket was taking the spark plugs out and putting air in each cylinder. If you really wanted to know which one it was and look for the bubbles I, I, done. So agreed. Another inspiration for this with you was a couple episodes ago with Tanner Brandt talking about in-cylinder on a friend of ours, that little compression, looking at in-cylinder and having like some of the experts at in-cylinder pressure looking at it, trying to figure out what's wrong with this cylinder. Why is it low compression? A lot of time. A lot of time is spent. And it's not not bashing on the experts because it's only going to tell you so much. I mean, we're looking at pressure. It's only going to tell you so much. 
And so they find out what's wrong with it with a borescope. They they run a borescope down in the spark plug hole, look back up, and now it's just blatantly clear what is wrong with this cylinder. And it's one of those things where like you can't wait to use the pressure transducer. You've been yeah. to these classes. It definitely has a place in our diagnostic arsenals, tool arsenals. It's it's definitely got a place, but I think we've got to be aware of what it's not going to tell you just as much as what it can tell you and to not get so hung up on it. Like if it's not obvious, move on, find, find a different test. And if you have to sit at home and go back and look at it and maybe you can connect some dots. Right. I would caution people about that heavily though, because sometimes you can come up with some really gnarly hypotheses that are not remotely correct. Seeing it happen live, it's just, it's so bad. Especially live. Like if you're doing something live and you're looking at it, you know, I, I think that's one of the difficulties I have at times when I'm filming my stuff is I'm always doing everything live and I'm troubleshooting live. And sometimes I spit out some stuff that's just flat out wrong <laughs> while I'm troubleshooting live. And yeah, I did. I did it yeah. in a class once. Luckily, I heard myself or I caught it like, whoa, 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 stop. Back up. <laughs> Ignore that. That is so wrong. That was so wrong. I don't even know. It's like you, sometimes you get talking for the sake of talking and <laughs> bad. Yeah. Very bad. Hey, and for anyone joining us now who thinks Matt and I are bashing scopes and, and newer testing methods, we are not. Just to jump in real quickly on an in-cylinder pressure test since we're talking about that. I had a Lexus with a shifted keyway on the crank that had good cam and crank relationships. It had good everything else. And the in-cylinder pressure test was the one that allowed me to say, sell the job, pull the timing covers off. Something's wrong in here. So just so you guys know, we're not bashing this stuff. We're just talking again about other ways. Let's, let's not ignore the foundations of what auto repair has been forever um, in some of our newer testing methods, right? Let's make sure that we're taking the right tools out of our diagnostic toolbox and use them properly, but don't forget about the old tools, you know, right? We got our, we have our quarter inch ratchet and 10 millimeter socket. Well, don't forget about the 10 millimeter wrench. Sometimes you still need to use the 10 millimeter wrench. Yep. Or instead of, you know, not to keep, piling up on scopes or pressure transducers, but sometimes in lieu of that, grab the cylinder leakage tester yeah. or grab a boroscope and look with your eyes and, and see, see the issue. I hear it over and over again. You know, even if we backtrack to one of my first episodes about that Chevy truck that I'm pretty sure was a lightning strike. Initially, I'm scoping everything to try to find this network issue. And that was that was way the wrong angle because I was kind of groomed to be very anti-ohm meter, just very anti-ohm meter. It turns out that's what saved me. That's what got me going on the path when I fixed that issue or, you know, and it was a series of issues of different modules. But once I got kind of some of that uh, taken care of where now the resistance of the network is good, but I still had issues. Now I needed the scope. The scope was the only way I was going to figure out what else is contributing to my network issues. I'm not familiar with that episode. So what it was, the resistance was off then? 
Initially, yeah, it was open circuited in the uh, ABS module. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm scoping first and the, the network is a mess. Yeah. Uh, and the way the network is set up those modules, I can't just unplug modules and take them off the bus. I would have to jumper them. Well, there are so many of them. And then even with two U-test kits, AES, AES Wave U-test kits, I didn't have enough jumpers to jump all these modules. Right. So uh, Thornton and I were on the phone talking, just visiting really. And he's like, hey, you got anything cool going on in the shop? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this network problem on this pickup, this Chevy pickup. Like, I'm looking at, the, I'm scoping it. And it's the biggest mess I've ever seen in my life. And kind of trying to jump some of these modules. He's like, why, why don't you measure the resistance? And it was almost, you know, like a vampire in a crucifix, <laughs> just like, <laughs> don't swear. Yeah, I bust out the ohmmeter and hold, sure is the devil. It's way off. And so I start tracking it down that way. And I find that I end up replacing, I mean, a dozen or more modules on different networks. So the high speed can had issues. GM land or the low speed uh, had issues. I had a lot of weird sensor issues, like the mass airflow sensor was bad. The brake pressure sensor, vacuum pressure sensor is bad. Like all these different things. That makes sense. The pressure sensors would take a hit from the lightning because their pressure sensors are a little module in themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, power steering, uh, both the uh, module and the uh, steering angle sensor. Oh my goodness! It, it was what crazy. Was like it got it literally towards the end. It got to the point where if it set a code, we were just replacing it. We just stopped testing. <laughs> that's how yeah. that's how bad it got. And it just had to. Luckily, sure. it was a pickup truck, so I could store all the old modules in the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's awesome but yeah it, it, I had to dial it back and what's awesome is you have John Thornton's phone number I'm stuck on that you, you get to talk oh, to John Thornton like hey John how you doing it's Matt <laughs> that's cool <laughs> that's cool yeah it, it's surprising how I mean we started out talking about cars but eventually we would not talk about cars at all yeah, I think we talked about this I don't know if, we, if it was this one but he he was Back in the guru classes in the early 2000s with uh, Jim Linder, John Thornton was like the man that kind of set me on this path. Outside of like the training I had at my technical college, when I was there, I had an instructor, Dan Svitko, that was very, very instrumental in my life. And John Thornton would be the other one for sure. Are you a repair shop owner? Do you find yourself struggling with any of the following? Uncertainty about the future and competition. Are you spending too much time managing chaos and struggling with new employees? Do you lack time to invest in learning best practices? Or there's no time to spend on effective marketing? How do your finances look? Are you reactive rather than proactive? Do you know where you should be? When to grow? When to shrink? If any of those situations describe where you are today, you are finally in the right place. Repair Shop of Tomorrow is Napa Auto Care's newest endorsed partner. They are helping shops all over the nation run more profitable automotive repair shops by utilizing proven business best practice marketing and coaching to leverage NAPA programs to drive quality, car count, sales, and profits. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will look at productivity, efficiencies, effective labor rate, average hours per car, labor profit percentage, measure and manage labor, and how you can create net profit. Team up with coaches to create systems, operations, and procedures using a business flowchart to help you reach your goals. 
Repair Shop of Tomorrow will help measure and manage the results to help each business succeed. Best of all, it's not do-it-yourself. It's all done for you. Their goal is to help dealers do what they do best, fix cars and build relationships at the counter and in the community. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will take the other minutiae off your plate. The Repair Shop of Tomorrow offers a tier-based program to not only generate more business today, but to transform your shop into a top-level shop of tomorrow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow can teach you how to make your shop profitable. They can teach you how to recruit and how to make more labor dollars for your shop. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 440-545-1230 for a free 20-minute no-obligation consultation or contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. Yeah, you got me injected into the kind of that Linder world so that I meet Randy Dillman and Scott Manna and yeah. Aaron Kepin, like this group of super, super smart guys. And then IETN had me introduced to Harvey Chan and Matt Ragsdale and Randy Burnclaw. So it was a really, really good mix. You're, yeah, yourself well, included too, because you were definitely on the IETN side. And then Linder's, we weren't in the same guru class. Did you ever get to go to like Guru 2 or 3 or the... Um, um, I did Guru 1 and Guru 4. Okay, Pico Guru. Yes, because it was the Pico one. So I, I did the Guru 1. I didn't do 2 and 3, so I'm not sure what all was covered in those, but I did 1, and then I think a year or two later, I did 4. Yeah, and you might have been in the inaugural Pico I think it was the guru. first one, yeah. Where uh, Craig... Um, Schoenberger, uh, yep. He was there, yep, yep. Guru 2 was mainly focused. It, it wasn't nearly as long as uh, Linder, the Guru School. Guru School was about a, was a week. It was a week, yep. Guru 2, Guru 3 were weekends. Guru 2 is focused heavily on scan tools, specifically graphing scan tools. Mm -hmm. So Thornton would be there demonstrating ease and later, well, he might do a segment on ease and then he would do a segment on IDS. And then Dave DeCourcy did uh, the Tech 2. They would have uh, representatives from Bosch might be there, OTC, Snap-on, kind of demonstrating how to graph with their tools and kind of the, if you will, power of graphing. Yeah. And Guru 3 was a lot more just... I don't think it was set in stone as much as 1 and 2, where 3, when I went, Randy Dillman was working for an independent Euro shop so he did a couple of presentations on Euro vehicles and that world, which is completely foreign to us. Mm -hmm. the, their tooling and the way they provide service information and some of the pains that he had gone through in some of the most mundane uh, operations. And then uh, uh, Scott Manna did one presentation on, I think, uh, active fuel management. So, and there were much smaller classes, you know, I guess. Guru itself is a very small class. Two would be great. fairly, yeah. It was some of the best training I've ever had, Matt. I, like I said, outside of technical college stuff, like it was, it has been probably still to this day the best training event that I've ever gone to. So that's props to Jim Linder for setting that up and his whole vision for for all of that. So yep. the only thing I didn't like about it was I think it was like Thursday or Friday. We went to the Indy 500 racetrack and yeah. we went around in the van and that was cool. But I wasn't there to sightsee. 
I, I could have, I would have rather been home with my family for that final day. That, that was my, my only, my only complaint of the whole thing is like, I would have rather had some more training and then go home. Like, that's cool. Like I just didn't, some people like that, but it's funny, like outside of what we do, I don't like cars. <laughs> I don't yeah. like, I just don't like, that's not my passion. I mean, the power wagon I have now has kind of changed that a little bit for me. So I'm kind of, but that's a unique like situation. And I just, cars aren't my thing, man. I, I don't like, I, I want to go fishing and not think about cars. It's more about solving the mystery, solving the puzzle, figuring out how something really works. Yeah. More so than the actual car. I really right. don't isn't, care about. Isn't that, isn't that awesome though? Like our field and, and puzzle solving like here, here's, this is really not the subject. I'm sorry to, change it. I mean, kind of matches, but I just did this PT cruiser. I think it was like 2010 or something. I don't know. It had a parasitic drain, like a 1.2 amp parasitic drain. Kept killing the battery. Customer replaced the battery like three times before he got to my brother's shop. And, oh shoot, should I even be talking about this? This isn't produced yet. I shouldn't be talking about this. When are are we producing this podcast? That can be all edited out. I think we'll just skip that for right now. I was yeah. about, well, I'll tell you, whatever. If somebody hears your podcast, then they're going to know up front what's wrong with this PT Cruiser. Whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm going to still produce it. It's one of our next ones coming up. I think that's going on my website anyway, so it's not going to be viewed by the masses. And it's really crazy, though, Matt. Like, it's one where the, like I said, the battery was changed a couple times. And then the guy brings the car, says, okay, it's got a parasitic drain. And then also my transmission's getting stuck in second gear. Well, long story short, somehow in the jump starting of the batteries or battery replacements, he messed up the engine computer. There was like no comms between the engine computer and transmission computer, but they're the same computer. There isn't a whole lot to do with this particular flowchart as far as what's going on here. Engine computer got messed up in the process, has nothing to do with the drain, but we think from repeated jump starts and whatever, that's he spiked it. But the power down window switch was stuck in the down position, which engine off's no big deal. But when you're driving it, that signal's always there and that driver's door module is trying to put the window down all the time. So overheats the driver's door module. We think everything else works like it should, but the network was staying alive. So the driver's door module was sending a message and never shutting down the, it was can B network. That was what was killing the battery. If I'm doing parasitic train testing, I'm starting with a thermal camera now. Forget the old school. I'm not even attempting to even look at this car without the thermal camera first. So that was key. Clusters glowing red, radios glowing red. Okay, great. We got direction. These are staying alive. Why? Pull up the network. Long story short, again, driver's door module was keeping everything alive. As soon as I unplug that driver's door module, everything goes to sleep. No more drain. All started from a window switch. I think that was the catalyst. The window switch being stuck in the down position. Driver's door module trying to work that window kind of all the time. Don't know if that's what messed it up or not, but yeah. Anyway, that's that, kind that's of cool. I don't know if you want to delete yeah, all that. Cool. I don't know where the tie in it is there. I guess that's one where we're talking about not romanticizing high tech stuff and, and going old school and old school says 
disconnect the battery, put your ammeter in, start unplugging fuses. Well, we, we really, that method isn't really, I, I just think it's missed on today's yeah. cars. I yeah. don't think it's so much even bashing new technology or new techniques. It's just that yes. when the techniques don't have the uh, productivity or the positive outcomes or immediate outcomes that you could in a different way, or the older way. Or So one example that comes to mind is this is one of your, I think this is when you're still college teaching at the college full time, I think. But you're talking about circuit analysis. And you go on a really nice rant, I felt, about the test light and how powerful right. that tool is. And how too often we're watching people forego using a test light. And not, not the computer safe ones. You're, you know, you're talking about the one with a bulb, probably a Harbor Freight. It's where the only where place you're going to get one now. Yeah. That's got a real bulb, pulls, you know, quarter, quarter amp or so, 250 milliamps ish. And how valid that tool is for finding electrical issues when used properly. And you don't have to be a genius to know when it's proper. You know, meters, yes, you got the number, but they don't load the circuit. Mm -hmm. That's a big problem. Mm -hmm. And maybe you end up using a meter in conjunction with a, some, a test light or a bulb that loads the circuit. That's fine. Talking about the thermal imager. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's newer technology. It's affordable, finally. It's not so much new, it's affordable. We, we can yeah. afford to purchase one that's very usable in a shop now. And I don't know how many times like I, I help with maybe the defogger doesn't work for the rear window. And, you know, they're in there with their test lights, they're in there with their meters trying to figure this out. It's like, well, wait a minute. Go yeah. to the thermal imager. Let's look at it. And you have, you know, three grids that are lit up or, you know, producing heat, this big gap, and then maybe the bottom one or two or three or however many is heating. Do we really care about anything anymore? <laughs> no. <laughs> we're not going to no. freaking fix it. Or, or right. We're replacing something, probably the window back there. Right. Do we really care about verifying power and ground? You can do it if you want. Right. But you don't need to be like checking each individual yeah. you know, leg, if you will. Yeah. We're done. Same with the heated seats. It's kind of like, now yep. I'm using this as a means to simplify my world rather than using a new technique, new technology, new um, test tool or a piece of equipment that actually complicates things, makes things yeah. more complex, more complicated to sift through and interpret. Right. You know, can I shove air down this cylinder at the TDC compression and watch the or feel the air blowing out of the, you know, the exhaust? Or am I sitting there with my scope and my pressure transducer trying to interpret this? And I, I just think yeah. it sometimes overcomplicates it. And but then, like your example, that Toyota or I'm sorry, Lexus, that without the pressure transducer, that job just got way more complex, way mm -hmm. more complex, mm -hmm. way more expensive to diagnose because now you're tearing it apart because you don't know what else to do to right. visually verify your idea that this thing is out of time. But not the the gears and the sensors. It's the where the cam meets the gear is out of time. So now the pressure transducer was that almost ne necessary to make that a diagnosis without tear apart, tear down. Yeah, 
No, and that's one where, depending on the car, a teardown might be four hours just to get in that far, just to prove your hypothesis. Like, I, that's awful. I, I definitely want to use something high-tech to help me that says, that's not a hypothesis anymore. Look at this waveform. This is absolutely a timing shift here. Like, look at the you know compression peak compared to when the ignition firing event's taking place. This is wrong we're absolutely going in good. Get on the phone and sell the job to the customer. It's difficult to sell that job to a customer. Hey, we need Mr. or Mrs. Customer. We need $500 to verify what we think might be wrong. And that's, we want your okay to pull this, this cover off and check it where the pressure transducer in that case was one that said, it's not a, it's not a guess. We got to go in. We don't know what our problem is yet, but this is absolutely needed. And it's way easier to sell that job. Way easier. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of tools like that. You end up buying that simplify a process, simplify one that just popped in my mind was the, um, I think it's called drive a line. It's a little laser that you set on uh, serpentine belt pulleys to right. make sure they're all lined up equally. And how many belt squeals we've fixed or how many repeated belt failures we've diagnosed with that tool. Nice. To see, you know, Chevy, a uh, GM is notorious for the power steering pump pulley. We've had a couple of them where they're, you know, of course, now when you see it's out of alignment, now it's obvious that somebody assembled it incorrectly and it's whatever the component is, is not mounted properly. So it's way forward or way moved back yeah causing that belt to kind of have to bow in or out but that tool you know Mm -hmm. makes life easy so it's really just kind of i think assuring people that don't necessarily have the equipment yet that they don't need to run out and buy it all the time there's definitely stuff well worth having thermal imagers but don't maybe not use it to find misfires Put it in the best position to, or, or put yourself in the best position to succeed using some of these tools. A pressure transducer. Yeah, should have one in the arsenal. Should you use it on every freaking misfire? No. I remember at Vision one year, at working, I think I was working in the Pico booth. And, you know, keep. I guess I keep bringing him up, but what, he was there, legitimately. Thornton's there and Harvey Chan, and we're just visiting. And a guy stops by. And he's like, hey, guys, can I talk to you about this Ford pickup just just murdering me? It's got a misfire. I cannot find it. And he has got, you know, eight channel captures of all the cylinders. And he's got mode six and he's got all this stuff. And John's looking at all of it and he goes, have have you, you know, hooked up a scan tool and looked at the power balance? You know, do you have IDS? At the time, IDS was really the only tool that did, um, the Ford power balance really well. Now other scan tools do a pretty darn nice job of it. But at that time, I don't think Autel was really well known. They all suck that power balance. Yeah, this might have been like Autel 708 time around there. And uh the guy did have IDS and then no it was not it was hadn't been plugged in yet. Hmm. And it, that was it. We we're just kind of all done. Like right. You have all this data that's you're trying to sift through. Why didn't you go right to that and have a little more focused attack? Like, okay, now I know this cylinder, or yeah. at least 
the PCM thinks this cylinder and or this cylinder and this cylinder are, are misfiring, I can focus my attack on that and then use my scope with some purpose. Yeah. Step two with the scope, now I have purpose. I'm going in with purpose. I have an idea what to look for. I'm going to rule, try to rule out certain things. You know, being in that as a forward, depending on where the cylinders are, coil swaps are, you know, well within the realm of reasonability. Spark plugs. Yeah. I don't know about you, but sometimes there's spark plug failures that cause misfires that I cannot see on a scope. I can't pick it up. Get frustrated, throw a plug at it, and it fixes it. And then you're comparing the both, and it's like, I, I don't see it. Yeah. That's tough, for sure. You know, there's there's a balance with all of this too. And I'm I was, as you're talking, I'm thinking about you know my YouTube community, and so many of them aren't professional technicians. Of course, my main I think my main audience would be directed toward technicians. I teach to technicians, but I have many do-it-yourselfers on there that say, "Hey, you know, I I can't follow what you're doing because all you use is scopes and all I have is a voltmeter and a test light. And an example I'm thinking of where you can use your voltmeter and test light more effectively once you see what it should look like on a lab scope. For example, yep. a, a crank sensor failure, you know, say it's a hall effect, is going to be really, really difficult for you to understand what you're looking at with your voltmeter because it's going to average the signal. And then maybe when you watch a video where the guy's using the, the lab scope, you understand, well, that glitch that he's showing, there's no way that I'm going to ever see that with my voltmeter. And then you understand the limitations of your tool. Or another example might be a coil negative firing event, and I'm teaching a, a no spark analysis on this particular coil. Maybe it's a no start on an old school car. Maybe it's a single cylinder misfire on the newer systems. And I'm showing you that you can monitor coil negative control with your test light and the test light should blink on and off. And you don't really kind of have a good visual of why. But if you watch a video where a trainer is going through that with a lab scope with coil control and you can see the big voltage spikes in the control of that coil, it really makes it come to life for you. So, you know, it really can go that direction, too, is we can use the higher tech equipment, if we want to call it that, to teach us how to recognize certain faults with some of our lower tech stuff. Yeah. And, and, and then not forgetting, you know, as we learn the higher tech stuff, we don't just throw away our, our lower tech methods because they're still valid and they save you time. And when you introduced this in the car you were talking about, that was a day where I got my ass kicked by this other car. My brain is fried and I don't really want to work on this particular car that you're watching my son film me working on. My brother's just like, Paul, can you look at this car real, real quick for me? And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, yes, we're going to do it real quick. This is the method here. And let's get through this as fast as possible. And coil swapping was absolutely it on that car. And then you got people behind the scenes that, you know, they don't know what's going on and they want all of that other stuff. And in my mind, I'm like, listen, I'm fried here. I just needed an answer for this car. And I just showed you guys a real quick way to find an answer done. End of video. You know, and that's just what it was. And unfortunately, that's the way it is in my world. People don't see all of that stuff in the background. But that was my intent there. We, we can't forget the easy stuff. To identify, and I think that's the whole point of your podcast yes. here is 
is we, we, we have all this new stuff we're learning, which is great. We need it, but we can't just throw away all of our older stuff. Can't do it. Yeah. It's how often are you going high tech and it costs you more time and effort than if you'd have went low tech or now you're going back to the low tech to help support what you think you're seeing on the high tech. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of rant about that. I feel like there's a lot of um, either authors or presenters that oftentimes are showing us high tech things that they did not make the call based on that. They based it on low tech, but they're not showing us the low tech. They're showing the high tech. And instead of showing the low tech going, well, this is how I figured it out. But I kind of think I could have done it with this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it's a scenario where the high tech way would have been quicker if you could have made the call. And then that's important to learn. But, you know, a lot of times it's the opposite. A lot of times the low tech is fast, just as accurate uh, than the high tech. The high tech takes longer to do more convoluted, if you will. And and then you're st stuck where you may have to go low tech just to make sure. Right. Uh, where if you're doing this like on a Saturday or after hours, go ballistic, go crazy. Yeah, go ballistic. We're quoting Top Gun on this here podcast. I mean, go ballistic. Try stuff out. You know, uh, sharpen your skills on when you do have to go high tech or use that piece of equipment. But, you know, when you're there trying to produce, I think sometimes yeah. you got to forego that. Maybe come back later. Uh, to satisfy some curiosity. Yeah, you might have 10 more cars you got to look at, right? Yeah. <laughs> Get it done as fast as you can. Whatever test you have, just prove it. It doesn't really matter. Do you, do you think that some of the training that we have today and the way that it's advertised, it's almost like trainers feel like they have to be, quote, high tech to get their classes heard or to get any attention? Do you think that's a problem, Matt? Yeah, yeah. I, I think technicians, shop owners, attendees, consumers of training have put the, the those guys, the instructors, those people, training developers, in that position of I have to I have to blow their hair back because if I put on this intro to you know whatever drivability basic techniques, nobody's going to attend. Or the ones that do attend, if they're fairly, you know, they kind of know all these techniques already, they're going to leave me a bad review mm -hmm. because they didn't learn anything. Mm. Even though the content might be perfectly fine. It's 100% accurate. But I paid money to go to this basic class and I didn't learn anything. And I'm not, you know, a basic tech. And that gets weird, too, because how many technicians do you run into that actually say, yeah, like, eh, I'm... I don't really know much about this stuff or I'm, I'm kind of an intro level on this area. Many, we all have these huge egos, don't we? Yeah. Like, I mean that we have to somehow navigate and manage, you know, I think we all have a tip on our shoulders. I think it just, we're all cut from that same cloth in some way, shape or form. We mainly because and it's not necessarily a bad thing. We just don't want to be wrong in what we're doing and what we're saying, because if we're wrong, then the car's not getting fixed. Yep. <laughs> so it's just, right. We, we don't want to be wrong. Yeah. And we're not yeah. doctors. I can't say like, Oh, I'll try it for two weeks. Come back. If it's not I right, know. we'll, we'll <laughs> right. try something else. 
Matt, most doctors are parts changers, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they are. I'm telling you. I, you know, it's it's awful. But and, and what, we have the benefit where you might just get better on your own. Like, <laughs> I'm going to give you some of these antibiotics. Yeah. But you're probably going to get better on your own anyways. But I look like the hero. <laughs> like, Right. No, it's funny. As you're talking, you know, as trainers might think what you were saying about getting bad reviews about, you know, a basic class. It's funny how many people still to this day and in the world I, I live in, I see it, you know, on a global scale, how many technicians don't understand voltage drops and how to do basic voltage measurements. I, I hate to put a number on that, but it's a it's the majority. It is absolutely the majority of seasoned veteran technicians that still are not properly measuring voltage on anything. Yep, yep I agree. It's hard to do. I think it'd be expensive to do. I think it's needed. I think it's needed because I think that's the most the most reasonable way to do it is at the larger training conventions. I'm going to call out specific companies. Not that it's their fault, but I think they're in the best position to help. Tech and console lab that can provide people hands-on electrical classes that would involve heavy, heavy use of voltage drop and could illustrate. I go back to that video because I I love it. I really do. Or you're talking about circuit analysis and the test light, the meter, scope. It's very reasonable for them to have so ATech and Console Lab build these tabletop trainers. I think that's what they're called, trainers. And they might be circuits. ATech, the one I've used the, that I saw, I thought was brilliant, is a uh, tabletop circuit board, essentially, that you kind of assemble. And it has a laptop connected to it. And it has some procedures in it that you do for uh, finding faults, assembling the circuit. So the one I did was like a horn circuit. So you... There's a relay on there and a horn that kind of squawks and a button and you hook the leads up and then it has you go through some steps of testing. And when you get through that, the instructor can use their laptop that's networked with everybody and start bugging your circuits. And you have to figure it out using a voltmeter or you could use a test light or you could use a a scope like a U-scope, which would be simple, right? And then Console Lab has the more elaborate type things where they have almost an entire system that's tabletop. So an entire ignition system, an entire fuel system uh, for testing. But it's the same thing they could do. I just think it'd be really expensive, but man, have that practical. Go through some theoretical, talk about, I don't know if you have to get into like deep numbers, but the concepts, strong concepts on Ohm's law. Mm -hmm. And then practical and let people associate that and, now we're going to do things. We're going to tweak things. Maybe not to the point of bugging yet. We're mm-hmm. going to show you how when the ground gets worse, the voltage goes up yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Depending on how we're connected. I know Yeah, no, for sure. this is audio cool. only, so it's tough. That's the one that most people miss. Like yes. It's just such an easy test. Yep. And the, how different referencing. Like if you reference battery negative versus referencing battery positive, then the voltage drop still works. You just kind of kind of turn around in your head what you're looking at. Yep. That it would be very practical. I just think it would be, I don't know how expensive it is for ATEC to get 30 or 40 of these 
yeah. for 30 or 40 techs. And I don't know yeah. how much it would be for console lab to get 30 or 40 of these lined up for 30 or 40 attendees. I sat in a class, at an ACAT, which is almost all college instructors. And I'm not bashing on the instructors. This is not the point of saying this. I'm just saying that in that classroom of about 20, I am the only technician in there and who, you know, hopefully does fairly well with electrical stuff. The classes last about an hour and a half. So I had my horn circuit going and no time was moving on through the levels. And then I was on to turn signals and all that. Most of those instructors who needed the training, they're in there because they needed it. They're in the right place. They're in the right place. After about an hour, the main ATEC guy had to go around and help them get their circuits going. And these are the ones teaching the... I hate to say young people anymore. It's, it's not young people anymore, but yeah. the people coming into the profession. And and so, you know, kudos for them to be in there because they needed it. But I think, like you're saying, this is much more prevalent throughout the profession that yeah. if you can get these people, techs, men and women alike, in these classrooms using practical testing and it's not even testing. It's a, a practical education that live and very, very quickly see the advantage of using a test light, the advantage of using a meter, the advantage of using a scope and how the circuit behaves with different issues. And they would, while learning also through the testing, that's, you know, I'm going to bug this now. You have to figure it out and finding out they can't figure it out. And learning, like, man, I bet you that room would be so bright with the light bulbs going off above people's heads. You'd have to wear welding mask. Yeah. I would love to see that. I don't know how, man, I don't know how you fund it. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like the companies you mentioned and those those particular trainers are would be perfect for a school environment like uh, like I'm in, you know, where Rosedale Tech, say, would purchase X amount, a number of those units. And that could be then recycled for each group of students that would come through. And so then you're really that's really it sounds like those companies, that's really what they're set up for. Maybe not the big market training events that we're talking about. But, yeah, I mean, that, you know. So those two companies, you guys need to contact uh, Rosedale Technical College and let's let's make something happen. We we've got some serious grant money just recently. We got a million dollar grant. My boss knows all the or the president of Rosedale knows all the ins and outs of all all that stuff. But we got a million dollar grant to just put into the program. We're dumping that uh, the most of that into our electrical program right now. We have a commercial and a like kind of building electrical program, but that's where that's going. Yeah. That was it vision. Yeah. I was just thinking as you're talking Matt, we, we should teach a class together and purposefully downplay it. Like this is the, this is the most basic class that you could ever take. (laughs) Let's see how many people sign up for it. We're going to teach a basic class. I'm sure it would be far from basic, but just call it what it is just because. I would do that class with you in a heartbeat, especially if you do like 90% of the talking. (laughs) That would be grand. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the hard parts too for any trainer when when you're trying to prep for those kind of classes is you have this fear. I know this is myself and this is probably why I have never really gotten into the aftermarket training is when I'm training 
I know that everything that comes out of my mouth, these students need because they're green. They've never heard it before. I know that they need it. And so I know that I'm not wasting my my time in talking about the most fundamental, basic aspects of something. And when I teach maybe something that's a little bit more advanced and everyone's like, oh, that's cool. I'll take that item and really break it down to the most basic level so everyone can understand. And I always felt like maybe in our aftermarket training events that everybody already knows that. So I'm going to skip that. I think what we're seeing, not I think, Matt, what we're seeing in our field, in our industry, clearly is people need that because they're not fixing these cars. Exactly. And if they knew these fundamentals, they could fix these cars. So I really feel like a basic class offered as a basic class offered as a foundational class could be a really good draw, you know? Yeah, I I agree too, because I can only speak for vision and only speak for vision because Sherry told me that the number of new attendees to vision were, I mean, immense numbers. So assuming that everyone there is top tier not that they aren't. I mean, the fact that they're there is already puts them into a, you know, category of top, top tier. But the assumption, because usually you go to these things and it's usually the same faces. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're all attending classes regularly, and it start to assume everybody kind of knows pretty much everything you're going to say. So you're trying to get quick to the stuff that'll maybe, like I said earlier, blow their hair back. Meanwhile, you have, you know, if the class has fifty people in it you recognize five, there's still 45 people that may not. And that's that's who you got to aim at. 45 people that definitely don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not may not, Matt, definitely don't. Like, because if they knew, then why, why is it nine out of every 10 garages a customer goes to, they're not getting the right call? Why is it nine out of every text that you take your car to can't, properly troubleshoot. That's the ratio. I mean, I think that's a generous ratio. I'm not seeing it better than 10%. And that is absolutely horrible. And then we talk about all the time in our field, how we want to elevate what we do. We want to, we want to elevate this trade so we can be paid what we're worth. But what we have in our own trade is those nine people that can't troubleshoot who hook up a scan tool, read a code charge you, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, $150 to read that code, and then they go change a part. They're doing nothing more than what the free diagnosis at the parts store does, and we're killing we're killing ourselves. So the customer doesn't recognize anything different, and that, that's a huge problem. Like We can't properly charge for diagnostics when nine other people didn't do it right. So how's the one guy that's doing it right even begin to charge properly for his diagnosis. I, anyway, yep. that's a rant. Yeah, they're, well, they're that or they're using database diagnostics. They're going to some database, right? Building the vehicle, punching in the symptom or the code, coming up with you know almost like Family Feud style. Like, what was the number one answer? All right, let's try that. Right. What, what is the difference between you, the professional, and the parts store that now has access to that too? Depending on either the scan tool or subscriptions, like they can do the same thing you can now. Right. Yeah, you're trying to get, you know, 150 or 200 dollars an hour, whatever diagnostic fee, 100 dollar diagnostic fee, and they're doing it for free. Well, yeah. W- what separates you from them? Yeah. Right. 
And it's hard for the customer to navigate through that. You know, I tell you what, when I, when I own my RV, I'm glad I sold it. It's gone. It's 40 foot, 40 foot bus with a 8.3 Cummins engine, diesel pusher, great powertrain. But I always, always feared a breakdown because where is it going to go? I already knew that wherever I'm at, it's going to be towed to the nearest shop. And um, for example, the high, high pressure fuel pump on that is like $8,500. And I had a low pressure feed inlet problem. It was algae in the transfer pump that I was able to troubleshoot on my own with much aggravation and many, many hours of studying, I should say, to figure that out. And I did use some experience-based diagnostic help to see all these people, these nightmare stories with these diesel pushers who are spending $15,000 and not fixing it. (laughs) And and it was one of my biggest fears is I'm like, I know that wherever this is going to go, it's going to go to a parts changer and he's going to freaking, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to be out a whole bunch of money. And it was just a stress. I just didn't want to have it anymore. And it's not like some of that stuff you can't fix out on the road. So that was really my biggest, my biggest fear with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I know I come off pretty hard on database diagnostics, but I think we've all been there where you're kind of stuck, where the understanding of the system is almost non-existent. You know, like if a CIS engine comes in, an old (laughs) Bosch CIS, there's no classes on that anymore. Experience, you see a couple a year. Right. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I have quite a few articles on how they're supposed to work and I, I, you know, I try, but sometimes, sometimes you just kind of got to go with, well, what's common? And now can I, can I take what's common and can I test it and verify it? And That's the you know, hopefully that raises that up to more of a professional level. But it's not like, you know, my favorite example, and I know I probably beat it to death. My favorite example is if you had a Chrysler, if we go back uh, early, late 80s, early 90s, I think, would set TPS codes in the uh, ECM, throttle position sensor. If you looked at scan data, it would be railed five volts. If you measured it with your meter or scope or whatever at the sensor, you know it's like one, one and a half volts, very reasonable. It would be very, very difficult not to slam an engine control module at that. And lots and lots of engine control modules got slammed in those things. It makes yeah. perfect sense. However, the fix ends up being a clock spring. Yeah. The airbag clock spring fixes the car. So unless you have like intimate knowledge of the architecture mm-hmm. of the engine control module and specifically the cruise control, hmm. you find out that internal to the module, one of the legs of the chips, IC chips, is shared between the TPS and the cruise control. And what happens is the clock spring shorts sends 12 volts in on that wire. Well, you know, it's not going to read 12 volts. It's a 5-volt circuit, right? So the PCM perceives this as railed high, 5 volts, TPS codes. Yeah, how do you how would you ever fix that? <laughs> not without a good diagram, you know, unless yeah, you, you know, know, looking yeah. at the guts. I mean, there it is, that database like you look yeah. it up and it's 
you know. Well, I I think the difference with the database with guys like you and me and many of our listeners is we will take the database and then go one step further. Use that as our guide. And I think the database, when it's done that way, is such a huge advantage. You know, it's like, well, it's, you know, it's either this, this or this. And we say to ourselves, well, okay, that makes sense. And here's why that makes sense. And now I'm going to go test that and prove it. And we should. And that's what we do. I mean, and so then it makes that database helpful as opposed to guys that are reading the code and seeing the database and just changing the top number because, they don't know how to test it. They only have a piece of information. They don't know how to verify that, you know? So I'm with you on the database. It's it's good and bad. Good for us to troubleshoot. It's bad for the, those that can't troubleshoot, you know? I agree. Yeah. Yep. And I had another quick example. It involves ABS again. I made a, a post a little bit about it on TechFeed that... Again, with the scopes or meters or whatnot, that uh, if you're chasing down, like an, an ABS sensor issue, it might have, and almost, I would say almost exclusively more the MR sensor types, because the VRS stuff is pretty easy to figure out one way or another. MR can be a little more difficult, that there's no shame. In actuality, there's probably a lot of logic. You've got four more sensors on, or sorry, three more sensors on the car. You can jumper wire the other side that you know works to the side that doesn't work and verify wiring or whatever and pretty much prove the sensor is bad or you have a wiring issue that you need to start tracking down. I think, you know, another angle of this is there's almost some shame in that simple test, that non (laughs) that non sophisticated testing that accomplishes the same thing or better. Right. With less. Why um, is that, Matt? Why are we uh, shameful of those? We shouldn't be. Should not be. Yeah. I mean, you, you post that up on Facebook group or, uh, you know, I, I think even back in the day on IETN, you'd have probably been shunned by a few. Hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I guess somehow you, we associate that with not being professional or, you know, like you said, if we're trying to elevate ourselves, this is how we're going to. Do the test? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? They checked my blood pressure at the doctor the same way they did when my dad was a kid. So right. it's not right. even digital. <laughs> right. Let's not forget about the old tests, man, for sure. I mean, as high tech as things, you know, have gotten, you know, there's just so many foundational things that just still work, man. And and the stuff isn't, is, you know, technology is increasing tremendously, but what, what's funny is as I start to see newer technology, because I'm, I'm further behind than I ever been, I'm not on the front lines anymore, but when I see this stuff, I'm just reminded, like, this isn't anything new. This Okay, this is new in this area. This is new application of the same thing that I understood on a 1985 feedback carburetor. <laughs> yep. yep. You know, it's still there. There it is. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Yep. So, yeah, fundamentally, man, I always say that, you know, and that's kind of kind of what, you know, the, your title of this podcast is, is really, really, you know, is, it kind of ties into that too, is, is don't forget, don't forget the older stuff that you learned. You might, 
not need all that high tech stuff. We're not bashing the high tech stuff. Matt and I use it all the time, but man, don't forget about your older tests that you've learned that are tried and true and still work and might save you a whole crap ton of time. And don't be ashamed of it. Right. Isn't, isn't just like you just said, don't be ashamed of it. Why should we be? If it works and it works and it's a hundred percent with no variables, then why, why are you making an apology for it? Yeah. Right. Do nothing to apologize for. Right. That's all like, this is a perfect note to end on. I really appreciate you coming on again, sir. Well, I appreciate your time, Matt. And I'm serious about a basic vision class. <laughs> we should do that. I think I, said I got no an email to- that the, the floodgates are open. So, Well, I said no to everyone. I, I get all kind of requests for me to do training outside. And I just, I don't have the time. I'm so buried in what I do. And, uh, but that's something I would consider. I'm not going to publicly say I'm, I'm going to say yes to that, but, <laughs> but I, I would consider doing a class with you if it was along those lines, because we need, we need to lift the trade. That's what you're doing. And I think it's awesome to have another avenue and resource like you have here with this podcast that guys like us can listen to when we're doing other things. And, you know, here's a tip for you guys out there that are listening. I don't know how long this is going to be, but if you listen to it in 1.5 times the speed or even two times the speed, you can get through it twice as fast. (laughs) That'd be for my viewers too, who blame me for being long winded. My son even calls me captain long wind. So I just tell those (laughs) viewers that if it's too long of a video, just watch it in double time and, and you can watch a 40 minute video in 20 minutes and still get the same info. So Does he sound technology like is cool. Elvin or Simon? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, it's funny when I edit videos, like I do that when Caleb and I share, like he'll be working from home. He sends me what he has. I'll watch myself in double time because I want to get through it as quick as possible. I know what I'm looking for. I know what I need. And then I'm just, I'm used to hearing myself with a chipmunk voice. So <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. Fact, I think I did that with you and Brandon's one. Cause it was real long and I didn't have much time. I had about 40 minutes and I, I did, I did you guys on a times two on that. It, it probably needed it. I mean, it was, no, it was great. It was such a good podcast, but I just, again, for what you're doing, Matt, I think it's great. And, and, you are elevating the the industry and what you're doing. And I'm just glad to be here and be part of it. So anytime you want, you want me on, you got me. Awesome. What are you doing tomorrow? Just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, I really appreciate that. I can't thank you enough, not only for coming on, but really seriously, everything you do. I, I mean that wholeheartedly, no smoke involved. I really, really do appreciate everything you're doing. And if there's any way I can ever help don't please don't ever hesitate to ask. I won't, Matt. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you too, buddy. All right. We'll talk. We'll talk soon about about you know about the class. Sounds sounds good. I look forward to that. Okay, buddy. All right. I'll talk Take to care, you soon. Man. Okay. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.